Welcome to a Work in the West podcast, supported by funding from the Social Science and Humanities Research Council and organized by Dr. Sheila Campbell and Andrew Stevens at the University of Regina. This alt conference series interviews researchers, graduate students, and community members about the state of work and employment in Western Canada. Enjoy. Welcome, Morgan, to the Work in the West podcast. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your research background? I completed the study that uh, we're going to be talking about today as part of my master's um, thesis at the McMaster School of Labor Studies, and this would have been in 2018 and 2019. So what I did was I was interested in the experiences of mothers returning to their jobs after maternity leave, and this was based on my personal experience as well. And I was particularly interested in when mothers returned to their uh, jobs post-maternity leave, what I experienced and what I anecdotally learned of a lot of mothers in the community experiencing restructured jobs that amounted to a qualitative demotion. And what I did in order to investigate this was I had come across literature that described something called a psychological contract that uh, exists between employers and employees. And what it is, is the beliefs about the obligations of an employee that the employee holds. And this can be based on actual promises made or simply belief, a belief that the, you know, their employer will follow, you know, a sense of organizational justice and how they treat their employees. I was interested in the function of this psychological contract between returning mothers and their employers, whether mothers who returned and found themselves demoted would experience this as a violation of a psychological contract. And in many cases, this violation could lead to an exit from the job. And this would be a clear indication that there is a need to reassess the protective legislation surrounding job reinstatement for new mothers, rather than leaving mothers in a situation where they believe they will be protected they act accordingly, and then they're blindsided on their first day back on the job. So because maternity leave protection is rarely, if ever, built into employment contracts, mothers are dependent on employment legislation that requires employers to return mothers to jobs of equal income and status when they return from maternity leave. This is honestly a vague and insufficient protection. There's also a loophole in the wording of the legislation that states, if employers can show that a change to a mother's job was necessary restructuring within the organization, then the mother's reinstatement rights have not been violated. Of course, employers can always claim that a restructuring is necessary. And if mothers wanna challenge this, the burden of proof is on them. They are at a greater risk of unemployment, or shifting to precarious work, or even to staying within an organization and working under conditions of stress, feelings of betrayal and rage. One study, for instance, found that violation of the psychological contract that resulted in employees feeling undervalued caused feelings of shock, sadness, and anger so intense that they fit the profile of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief. Separate research has showed that returning mothers do form psychological contracts surrounding their supervisor's behavior. Specifically, mothers often expect to be treated as if they are handling a new baby so that they will be allowed to access more family-friendly flexibility policies and whatnot. But no studies, however, look specifically at all three factors together, returning mothers, demotions, and the psychological contract. My study also draws from and contributes to truly an enormous body of research that, on the one hand, examines the types of discrimination mothers experience in the workplace, 
such as the motherhood wage penalty. In Canada, mothers earn on average 12% less than their non-mother counterparts. And this is in addition to the gender wage gap that they are likely to already be experiencing. On the other hand, stood a large body of research that examines mothers' challenges on an individualized basis in terms of personal characteristics, such as coping style and resilience levels. On one of, uh, one of the most predominant themes in this area is that of work-life conflict. So this is something thought to be experienced by mothers when their role as a worker and their role as a caregiver are not compatible. Hardly any of the studies seem to focus on, <clears throat> pardon me, the workplace factors that contributed to this challenge for mothers. <clears throat> and instead they attempted to, you know, they seem to attempt to locate the difficulty within mothers as individuals, asking such questions as why some mothers seem able to cope with the conflict and others don't which they claim amounted to individualized factors such as resilience levels and conflict resolution skills. So I wanted to situate my research firmly on the side of workplace factors rather than individual factors. And also beyond that to, you know, to further discourse on the larger systemic issue of mothers at the nexus of a care crisis in capitalism. Thank you so much for sharing that with our listeners. And I, I know you talked a little bit about this, but what got you interested in researching mothers' experiences post-maternity leave? Well, as I mentioned before, I did have some personal experience myself. I, you know, I was shifted to, when I returned from my own maternity leave, I was shifted to a different department without prior warning or consultation. So I arrived back on the job you know, after, you know, as any mother with a new baby knows, or any parent, you know, a significant amount of, you know, challenge and emotional upheaval, placing a child in daycare, making all the arrangements to go back to work, you're not really thinking in the space of, you know, here I go back into my work, I better be in touch, I better prepare, I better update myself on the office and the projects, you're really just thinking about what's happening with your family, you know, in, in terms of finding childcare, how to afford this childcare, all the emotional impacts of that on your family. So, you know, you show up back at work on your first day. And in my case, I was sort of whisked into a little room, you know, into a meeting with my, you know, current supervisor and what I was to learn to be my future supervisor um, and presented with a new contract for a new job in a completely different department. And this was, again, no word of warning. I, I had no idea about this. So I was shifted back into an administrative role that was actually the qualitative equivalent of my entry-level role in the organization. And I had been promoted out of department and, and role you know, over two years earlier. So I had been promoted to a role in a different department that aligned with my education, my past experience, and my personal goals in the organization. And so this was, you know, understandably a shock, but one that I really felt powerless to, to speak up about in that moment because there was a lot riding on me returning back to this job, particularly after, you know, placing our, you know, baby in quite expensive childcare. We were, you know you know, our, our financial goals as a family, all of these things, right? And so, you know, I, I, I continued in the job and it was, it was just a situation where I really began to, to hate it and to feel like I'd been completely sidelined. And, you know, the imp what stands out for me is the, the shame and the isolation that I felt, even though a colleague of mine who returned at the same time from her mat leave, well, just a few months difference, 
experienced the exact same treatment. And the two of us commiserated about this, you know, so even knowing that it wasn't just me that there, I probably shouldn't take it personally, I still felt, you know, extremely isolated, ashamed, and angry. I tried to fight for my previous job, and I was told that I was welcome to apply for a position in my pre-maternity leave department if one should open up. So the message was pretty clear that my perceived value in the organization had shifted irrevocably. And I really began to feel that it would be better for me to leave than to continue working with the shame and the sadness and the anger in what for me represented a dead end job when over two thirds of my pay was going to exorbitant daycare fees in a large city. So that led to seven years of my becoming a stay at home mom and trying to combine, you know, a second child as well, looking after a second child and realizing that, you know, the combined cost of two ch children in daycare was really not worth it at the level that I, you know, that, that my income capacity uh, to cover just didn't make any sense. So I became a freelance editor and that lasted for seven years until I returned to school. And during that seven years, you know, I, I socialized almost daily and almost exclusively with other mothers of young children, some working, some stay at home, almost all of whom had some similar story to share. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And next, I wanted to ask you, what is the most striking finding related to your research? Yeah, so even after my own experience, which in many ways did conform to a process of grief uh, over losing a value job, I was still truly shocked at the similarities in the experiences between my own experience and that of the, the mothers that I interviewed, including the level of anger and sadness that the mothers I interviewed shared with me. Out of the eight mothers that I interviewed, four of them used language that characterized their employer's behavior of as you know, almost physical and emotional violence. So language such as, it was like my supervisor threw me down on the floor and kicked me, or it was like an attack. The mothers who experienced the clearest sense of being demoted and devalued told me that they had not discussed their resulting feelings with anyone before. And it was intensely emotional for some. And for me, they showed a palpable sense of anger and betrayal, even rage at their employers. Not one of these mothers mentioned that they had difficulty juggling their work time with their care time in a, in a manner that compromised their productivity. So these two findings for me lead to a deep suspicion of indiv individualized experiences of, you know, quote unquote, work-life conflict as the reason why many mothers sort of supposedly choose to leave their jobs. Of the five mothers who ultimately left their jobs to pursue self-employment or to part-time work, each of these five mothers agonized over this decision because it entailed a defeat in their struggle to preserve their built up careers, but even more importantly, a loss of their stable employment with benefits, et cetera, and financial security for their families. So these were not women who could sort of cavalierly decide that staying home was simply preferable. These were, you know, decisions, again, quote unquote, made under extreme duress. And in many cases, decisions that represented a forced choice leading down a precarious path. The mothers I spoke with only began to consider leaving their jobs after they realized they were not being treated or valued in the same way. Did you experience or face any challenges while conducting this research? So any challenges with recruiting participants or any other related challenges to the study design, et cetera? Sure, uh, yes, that's a great question. Um, 
there was absolutely no challenge recruiting participants. In fact, I was overwhelmed with responses. The method I chose was purposive snowball sampling. So I, you know, sort of picked 10 acquaintances that I knew had, you know, a a good deal of social and, and workplace, you know, connections. And so I sent out 10 notices to these acquaintances and asked them to share with their network. The response I got was, you know, I, I turned away far more, far more women than I then I did interview, I ended up interviewing eight, you know, that number was chosen simply because of the limitations of my time and, and you know, the, the, the limitations of the length of the thesis uh, requirements. But those eight were chosen based on essentially first come, you know, the, the first responders to the, the notice. I knew nothing about any of the eight participants other than that they fit the requirement, which was that they had returned from maternity leave within the last five years to the same job, well, to the same workplace that they had been in prior to maternity leave. So knowing nothing about these women other than, you know, that, that they fit the requirement and, you know, it was decided based on that they were available to be interviewed within the next, you know, month or so. And so what happened is I think, you know, mainly a result of my, you know, sending it out to the original 10 acquaintances, what we got a fair, I got a fairly uh, homogenous sample. I mean, very homogenous in terms of these were all white collar workers. They were all married, all cisgender, all white. And yeah, six of them were in the public sector, two were in the private sector. So I do feel that that was a challenge uh, when it came to, you know, obviously when it comes to expanding any conclusions from the results to, you know, a larger situation for women in Canada. So, you know, I, I think it's important to keep that limitation in mind when talking about the conclusions and also, you know, to, to note for future myself for future research that, you know, <laughs> It, you need to kind of intentionally make sure that you have a diverse sample if you want to draw certain kinds of, you know, conclusions from your research, of course. Apart from that, I, I was quite, you know, the level of emotionality that I, that the women experienced made me realize that, you know, I perhaps had not anticipated and prepared myself to sort of be able to respond and support that. And, you know, of course I followed all of the ethics guidelines about sharing, you know, different supports and things, but I think I did not realize the degree of silence and shame that exists around this experience. And for, I believe all of the women mentioned that this was really the first time they had spoken to anybody about the feelings that they had when they went back and, and felt you know, devalued and very angry that they hadn't realized that any other women really experienced this and they had felt very isolated and, and, and shame and anger. And so in the future, it will be good to keep in mind that these are, you know, these are not necessarily experiences that anyone has shared before. And that can have real implications for how interviews are conducted and and how you prepare yourself emotionally going in as as an interviewer who is really, you know, I I was couldn't really have been more of an insider right in in the in the group that I was interviewing. And even so, it was it was just a shock. It was a shock to me, the intensity of that experience. 
What are the implications of your work, do you think, for women policymakers and organizations? Yes. Well, first, we need to understand that when it comes to marginalized groups and employment legislation designed to protect these groups, there is all too often the law in the books versus law in the ground. So our government enshrines mother's right to return to a job of equal pay and status. But what does this actually mean when you look at what happens when moms return to work? What are their on the ground experiences? They are unprotected. Employers seem to operate with impunity, partially because there is no oversight or enforcement of this legislation, and partly because to seek justice means going after more powerful parties as an individual with a grievance. So the economic and emotional toll of this route uh, of seeking justice as an individual, as well as the fear of stigma of being a troublemaker and jeopardizing future employment, which a number of women mentioned to me because employers within a given sector tend to collaborate and protect each other against, you know, employees that, that represent, you know, trouble. And an individual marked with the brand of taking their employer to court may never find work in their field. So it just makes the course of action of, of seeking justice as an individual simply not possible for the vast majority. So for policymakers, I think it's important to recognize that the current legislation is quite simply totally ineffective. Organizations for their part who aim to or claim to operate in non-discriminatory ways need to recognize that this is a vulnerable period for women, not because their home duties pull them away from work commitment, but because employers' assumptions about returning mothers tend to lead to discriminatory action. There is a good deal of discussion across sectors right now about onboarding policies as employees transition back into the workplace after COVID shutdowns. And these onboarding policies are also frequently part of workplace practices when it comes to, for instance, employees returning from disability leave. So, you know, there is a precedent for recognizing that returning to work following a significant absence is a critical moment in the relationship between employer and employee. So I believe it's a simple question of applying this concept to returning mothers. But without the appropriately protective legislation or enforcement of it, things are unlikely to change. And then for women, the message is simply you know, protect yourself. The psychological contract that exists in our minds that says, you know, well, I'm valued, you know, I was just promoted, or I have this good close relationship with my boss, and my boss told me not to worry about my job. This is not a reliable contract. Neither can women rely on the fact that employers will respect their legislated right to reinstatement. If women are unionized, it's important to investigate what the union will do to protect you in the event of discrimination upon returning. Is there a women's caucus in the union, for example, that has some structure and policy surrounding returning from mat leave? Otherwise, I hate to say it, but be very wary and suspicious. <laughs> stay in touch with coworkers and your supervisor. Stay engaged at even a minimum level by asking to listen in on meetings that are happening around your projects. Even ask point blank, you know, when I return, will this still be my title? Preferably by email. Get it in writing from your supervisor. Get everything in writing. Ultimately, I, I do also want to say that this study, you know, illuminates a very tiny piece of the experience of mother work in capitalism. And without a feminist political economy perspective, including a grasp of the implications of becoming a social reproduction worker, 
when you become a mother in any context, but the ruling class is really to enter what amounts to a moment of crisis for those who take on the work of mothering. And this crisis is the combined force of all the different pieces we know about mothering and capitalism put together and experienced simultaneously by one person. So some say that mothers are in a class of, of women on their own. So Ultimately, the study indicates a need for a comprehensive understanding of the whole picture of transitioning to mother within a waged work context, as well as an understanding of the bigger context of neoliberal capitalism that emphasizes a narrowly defined productivism and where workplaces, even in feminized sectors, are still androcentric. And what I mean by this is that they demand an ideal worker who is always available, who works longer than necessary hours to prove their commitment and to create as much surplus value as possible. So the worker who can most closely conform to this ideal is still more often than not a man, someone who is not responsible for the majority of care work in the home and in the community. Finally, I wanted to ask you, how did the sector you did your research in compare to other sectors, especially those sectors dominant in um, the labor markets in the West? Sure. All but two of the mothers I interviewed were employed in the public sector, and their experiences did not significantly diverge from experiences of the private sector workers I interviewed. So this surprised me somewhat since each of the public sector workers I interviewed was unionized and none of these mothers mentioned turning to their union or receiving support from their union, either in the process of preparing to take maternity leave or in returning to work and finding themselves qualitatively demoted. So I believe at the white collar level, these are fairly universal experiences across regions and sectors in Canada and in general in liberal welfare states. So this would be a perspective consistent with the fact that many other forms of discrimination against mothers in the workplace are applicable internationally. And we know this, such as, you know, the motherhood wage penalty, which I mentioned before, and the maternal wall, assessments of commitment and competence post-maternity, for instance. Ontario, BC, Newfoundland, and Alberta all have the highest gender pay gaps across all sectors in the country. Also interesting is that the cities with the highest gender pay gaps also have the highest daycare fees. So you begin to see that in a large picture sense, discrimination in the workplace is just one piece. Because these are not surprisingly the places where the highest number Sorry, you begin to see that in a large picture sense, discrimination in the workplace is just one piece, you know, and because these locations are not surprisingly also the places where the highest number of moms, you know, quote unquote, opt out of their full time work and turn to part time or, or stay at home mothering. So, yeah, I mean, and, and as far as sectors go, I think it's also important to mention that we don't really know about the transition to motherhood experiences of low-wage workers, such as those employed in the service sector, where the majority of jobs are already precarious. So, you know, my study suffers this limitation. And this is a large gap in our general knowledge, particularly since women of color are overrepresented in low-wage work. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast interview. I certainly learned a lot from your research, and I'm sure our listeners did too.
The music in this podcast has been brought to you by Mick Faye and the Deputies.